Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Julie Coronado, is president and founder of Macro Policy Advisors. She's one of the smartest people, uh, you know, looking at sort of forecasting, big picture economic stuff. A lot of people I've spoken to have been telling me uh, from back before inflation became a hot topic that she's the person to follow uh, on on these kinds of issues. And now uh, inflation is everywhere. Not to be flip about it, but really, I mean, I've been, you know, writing about the economy for a while now, 10, 15 years. And this is the first time that, like, inflation has been a like a non-fake thing, right? Like, prices really have been going up a lot. They have. And particularly, there's sort of several categories where prices have gone up a lot. I would say the last time I can remember there being angst about inflation was just ahead of the financial crisis. Hopefully, mm-hmm. that's not a leading indicator of similar dynamics to come. But that was very concentrated in energy, very high gas prices, very high oil prices. And then, of course, that reversed very sharply. But that was the last time that sort of policymakers were having debates about whether this was the kind of inflation that we should worry about or not. And as it turned out, not. We had bigger worries under the surface in that episode. And I think we have deeper dynamics to think about under the surface this time, too. That is a good place to start, actually, that sort of episode in 2007, because I do remember that. And if you look back at the charts um, or articles from that time, gasoline was getting very, very, very expensive uh, in the United States, much more so than it is now. And it had been a kind of a steady increase for a while. And I guess it's associated with economic growth in China and, and other things like that. And energy prices more broadly were going up. This was before we really had the fracking boom. It was a hardship to people, right? Like yes. not talking about like monetary theory, but just like a Correct. normal person. You're doing your job. You got to get to work every day. Right. Woman on the street perspective, it's a problem. And we know actually we've looked at consumer behavior and gasoline prices and there are sort of thresholds, right? Mm-hmm. Be- beyond a certain level, people really start to notice, you know, they think about it, they worry about it. It starts to affect their behavior sort of gas prices move around a lot. People are used to that within a certain range. They kind of ignore it. And then once they rise above a certain level, and that may be what we're kind of worried about right now, are there enough prices going high enough that consumers are starting to be anxious about it? And the tricky part about that is when economists talk about inflation expectations, we tend to talk about it as If people start expecting higher inflation, then it will become embedded in the psychology and the dynamics of the economy. But actually, there is also some research that shows that once people do start to worry about that, they actually start getting more cautious in their spending. Mm -hmm. 
So that's kind of the opposite effect of sort of a wage price spiral. It's kind of consumers start to just get more price sensitive and more budget conscious because they are worried that these high prices might last. Yeah. And I think, you know, to try to sort of explain this to people who are not up to their eyeballs in this, right? So economists Mm -hmm. have this model where, okay, I expect prices will be increasing. And so I engage in this kind of like frenzied behavior, right? Where it's like, buy the chair now because next year, you know, nobody's going to be able to afford it. Or I need to demand huge pay Higher increases. wages, yes. And, and employers yeah. are saying, I mean, obviously people always want more money. People don't want to pay more. And it becomes a spiral. And I do think that's a little unnatural, right? Like a more normal person. I, right. I think at least, at least at first blush, it's like, oh man, things are getting more expensive. I better save up. Exactly. And so we don't have a lot of episodes in history to sort of test these different hypotheses about how consumers behave and how that feeds into inflation dynamics. We have one clear example of a wage price spiral in the 70s. -hmm. And other than that, their inflation was sort of low before that and low after that. And There are different dynamics depending on where we are in the business cycle. And this particular one is quite unusual because, of course, some of the price pressures, of course, associated with shutting down and rebooting the global economy, supply chain bottlenecks, etc. And consumers, especially in the U.S., their willingness to pay higher prices for certain things like, say, rental cars, is a function of the reopening of the economy and the stimulus that was paid out. And those dynamics aren't going to last, right? You know, eventually people are going to start saying, you know what, actually, I took my vacation. And now if rental car prices are going to be that high, I'm going to sort of rethink about how I plan my vacation and how I get, you know, how I transport myself around, etc. So they they're going to start responding to those higher prices. We've already seen that actually in the spending data that spending on rental cars has declined as those rental car prices have soared, which was a function of, you know, all of the distress that Hertz went through and selling off their fleet and then buying it back. And they're not having enough capacity and raising prices and consumers respond. And that's the key question. Will consumers respond to these higher prices? Will they pay them or will they start saying, you know what, that's too much. And I'm going to adjust my spending accordingly which is what we saw before the pandemic. Consumers were very price sensitive. And of course, now we have the technology in our pockets to comparison shop and prices are very transparent. Does that price sensitivity come back and, you know, limit how much of these supply chain costs get passed through to consumers? So this was kind of my personal emotional journey on inflation. I'm going back to last year, you know, I figured, look, everybody is cutting back on their travel. They're cutting back on their dining out. They're cutting back on their vacations. We did a good job of stabilizing people's incomes. You know, at first I was like, this is going to be bad. We're going to shut things down and then people are going to have no money. The economy is going to go up. So that didn't happen. Some people were in hardship, but a lot of people just actually had extra money. You know, Mm -hmm. like I... 
wasn't buying expensive salads for lunch. Yeah, so it was <laughs> yeah. like I accidentally became this more prudent, thrifty person. And right, then it was like, right. well, when I get my vaccine, it's like, it's party yeah, time. I'm going right? to go crazy. I'm going to go get me an expensive salad, extra large. <laughs> well, you know, it's like, we're, we're, we're going to do stuff, right? It's like, you know, I gotta ta- I've got a six-year-old, so we got to yeah. take him to see my parents. We've got to take him yes. to see my wife's yes. parents. We're yes. going yes. yes. to go rent and- a car to do that. And I don't care if it costs me $500 to rent a car because I want to go see grandma. Because I got right? the money and like we have to we have to do it so i was like okay you know prices will go up and then like it's gonna be fine prices have sort of gone up more than i had thought they would you know that it's particularly this used car thing yeah the used car thing is driving a lot of it (laughs) a lot of it and that's like well beyond like okay hertz is jacking up prices right it's like New cars are expensive, used cars are expensive, rental cars. So, like, where'd all the cars go? Well, that's the chip shortage. So, one of the bottlenecks, and this is sort of a combination of things. So, one is, you know, there was some frictions in the semiconductor supply chain that came with the trade war before the pandemic that Mm -hmm. was kind of causing some frictions in global supply chains even before that, then we had some sort of idiosyncratic, you know, we had a a fire and a big semiconductor factory in Japan, you know, that's just something that happens sometimes. And then we had the pandemic and the combination of those things led to ramping down of semiconductor production. And meanwhile, this demand for cars that intensified and not just cars, Things that, you know, semiconductors go into gaming systems and appliances and TVs and a lot of things. And we were buying a lot of those things, you know, so a shortage developed and semiconductor production is ramping up, but it takes some time. You know, it's not something that you can develop on a dime. It takes some time. So, you know, if you talk to people in the auto industry, we still have probably six to nine months before we're at full production capacity. So, you know, some of these high prices could persist. That's more of a new car production dynamic. On the used car side, we're already seeing some of the intensity cool off. So wholesale used car prices have already declined for a couple of weeks now. And most of the people in the industry expect that to continue, that this huge surge is now behind us because Hertz has restocked their fleet People that had to get used cars because they relocated to cities where there aren't public transportation systems during the pandemic, that's happened. Okay, so that intensity of demand is behind us. And now going forward, it's just whoever wants a used car. So it's back to sort of more normal market dynamics. And so we will see probably prices of used cars decline in the next six months, probably one, not in July, but August through December, we're likely to see that decline. And since that's been the major category pushing up the headline, you know, consumer price index that gets reported month after month, we should start to see some, you know, reduced fear, (laughs) fearful headlines and lower numbers. But, you know, there are still things under the surface that aren't going to ease right away. New cars will probably keep rising for a few more months because inventories are really low. Consumers still want cars and We don't have the chips to make enough of them. And then now, you know, there's more focus on rent inflation. Rents are coming back as the economy comes back. And that's, you know, a bigger category, certainly, than used cars. So the more, you know, you don't need a big rent increase to push up the index. So there's a lot of dynamics. I mean, the big question, too, 
comes back to the labor market. We also have this strange situation where some indicators make it look like a really tight labor market and other indicators make it look like a really loose labor market. And that ultimately matters also for how consumers feel about the world and how willing they are to spend and how price sensitive they are. So again, that gets back to the unusual dynamics of the pandemic. And these dynamics aren't going to just resolve in July and August. It's Mm going to be probably the remainder of the year as we sort through this reopening. Let's take a break and then I want to look at some of those labor market questions. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. So, you know, some of what you were talking about there, you know, you mentioned how these same kinds of semiconductors, they go into cars, they go into lots of other sorts of, you know, games, appliances, durable goods. And, you know, part of what happened was just, like people kept buying that stuff where they bought it at higher rates during the pandemic because, you know, you need more yeah. stuff to do. You weren't buying restaurant meals, um, stuff like that. And so yeah. if the price of some stuff goes up, but also people have the money to buy it, it's like maybe not the greatest disaster. But what's interesting is that if you just like look at the basic unemployment rate, it's still really high in a yeah. way that makes me like less sanguine than I would be, yes. right? If we if we had all these same inflation numbers and stuff like that, but unemployment was 3%, but it's actually still really high. Mm-hmm. And I guess on some level, that's because, you know, a typical unemployed person, it's not like you can just go get a job in the semiconductor fab, but still, I mean, it's, there's something weird about mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. right? Like how yeah. can so many people be jobless while we also have, shortages of everything. Well, we are in the middle of a big policy experiment. And that big policy experiment is the result of, you could call them policy failures from the last cycle. So last cycle, we didn't provide enough fiscal support during a crisis, and it damaged the recovery dynamics. And monetary policy was overly concerned about inflation and probably didn't let the labor market run as strongly as it could. And policymakers realized that. They looked, I mean, it was very clear in the recovery dynamics and expansion dynamics last time that we could have done better. We could have recovered faster, and we could have seen better labor market outcomes for more people. 
So as a result, this time we provided way more support during a crisis than we ever have. And we did it by just giving people money. We didn't attach a lot of conditions and you have to fill out a a zillion paperwork and all of that kind of administrative burden tends to limit take up and Mm -hmm. slow the flow of money down. And just the nature of the pandemic made it easier politically to just give out cash because it's not anybody's fault in contrast to the housing crisis when plenty of people were like, I didn't buy a house irresponsibly. Why should I help out my neighbor who did? Now that it was nobody's fault, it was more palatable to do this, but we did it. I mean, we gave people not just small amounts, which is what we've done before. We gave them enough to get through. And again, not everybody, a lot of people experienced a lot of hardship. A lot of people got money that maybe didn't need as much as they got. And so hence, we have these strange dynamics where there were a lot of people that were actually flush with cash. They kept their jobs. They got some stimulus and they weren't, as you say, spending the normal money on things like travel and entertainment and and meals. And so they actually had a lot of money and they spent it. So we have these very disparate dynamics. And this has been also one of the most uneven recoveries in terms of who lost the jobs who experienced the hardship. They tended to be the people least able to fund a shock like that, like a job loss. Lower income workers lost their jobs. Whereas college educated workers that can work from home really kind of had one of the milder recessions they've had on record. So the aggregate statistics right now look very strange because you've got middle and higher income consumers doing pretty well actually and spending money, whereas we still have a significant segment, middle and lower, that are in distress still and who very much needed the fiscal support just to keep afloat and are still struggling to find their way through. And also, you know, the other labor market dynamic that I think we're seeing, and there's so much evidence of it as we go through this reopening, people are changed by a pandemic. They don't want to do the same things they did before. They have experienced personal revelations and changes as a result of the pandemic. Perspectives have changed. What people want to do, what they're willing to do is changing. And that complicates the matching up of jobs between employers and employees. Employers want to go back to the same thing in a lot of cases. And employees are like, you know what? I actually don't want that anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't want to work in a restaurant I would rather take a predictable schedule in a non-socially facing job. So to get those workers into restaurants, you need to pay them more or change your model. Give them predictable hours or other types of arrangements that they want. Similarly, even in technology or finance or other white collar industries, there's a tension right now between managers and employees. Managers want people back in the office. Employees are like, you know, actually, you know, the work from home is working for me. And so there's going to be a lot of interesting dynamics as we go forward in terms of who ends up where and what arrangement and, you know, different industries and different firms within industries are going to end up with different mixes. But there's just a tremendous amount of friction right now in the labor market, not all of which is bad. You know, all of this could end up with a happier, more productive workforce on the other side. But it means that we've got this strange situation with very high unemployment and very high numbers of job openings. 
And we'll see. I mean, job openings were surging in the spring as, you know, things started to reopen and people did not immediately come fill them. Then from April to May, you know, it kind of flattened out. I mean, I don't know. There's only so much reopening you can do. Um, Right, yeah. (laughs) And maybe those positions will start to get filled over the course of the summer. Either the wages go up, what have you. So it sounded like you seem pretty confident that the used car situation is going to wane. New cars on probably a longer timeline, but similarly, and I guess those are linked markets. There's some stuff like air travel that I think in a very straightforward way, linked to the reopening. So rent went down during the pandemic, had seemed pretty muted, uh, but that's now really coming back. And with rent, like people don't buy that much used cars, but a modest increase in rent really pushes up inflation. I mean, it seems like we should continue to have sort of high, I don't know, I'm not a real forecaster, but like above target inflation for a while, as long as rents start rising? Well, so rents, let's think about how the inflation measures that the government publishes measure rents versus some of these market indexes like the Zillow index or Mm -hmm. other measures that are going up really sharply. Those market measures of rent are measuring rental listings. What's the market listing of rents versus the consumer price index, which is trying to measure what are people actually paying? So your contract rent does, you know, you re-sign a lease maybe every year if you're renting. And so it doesn't turn over as quickly. So when we look at like the consumer price inflation, rental inflation slowed. It never went down as much as market rents went down in the crisis. And they probably won't rise as much as these market listing rents are rising right now. Because in some senses, if you think similar to airfares, Rents went down and now they're sort of normalizing. And so on a percentage basis, that looks like a huge increase, but it's off a really low base. So one of the distinctions you're drawing there, this is between sort of like rent on the margin. So like if like last August you wanted to move to Manhattan. Right. Get a really good deal. Right. Because like not a lot of people were doing We're moving to Manhattan. (laughs) But right. But that didn't mean but the typical (laughs) person in Manhattan. Right. Hadn't just moved to Manhattan. So like the average rent was really high, but the marginal rent had gotten like freakishly low. And now it's going the other way. And now it's going the other way. But again, for New York, it's like barely getting back. It's not even back to where it was before. It's just coming up fast towards that level. So that looks like a huge increase. But again, the average person in Manhattan, what they're paying and what they're going to renew their lease at they may still even get a cut relative to what they were paying before, you know, again, depending on where uh, market rents are. But yeah, exactly. It's the average versus the marginal. These market rents are capturing that bust boom. And then the average rent moves much more slowly. But so there's going to be a huge divergence in terms of people's like actual situation based on what they did, right? Like if you mm-hmm, were really sure. shrewd and mm-hmm. locked in some kind of extension last At the year bottom. when people were desperate, yeah, you might be in great shape versus if Hopefully you, you locked it in for 18 months <laughs> and not just 12. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> whereas other people, you know, maybe their lease is about to expire and they could be seeing a, a big kind of hike. And of course, a lot of people rent, many people own homes. And so if you've been owning a home, your equity has probably gone way up. And that's not considered inflation statistically. 
when the sale prices of homes go up. That's right. So housing is unique in that it is both a vehicle for saving and it's something we consume. So we consume housing services, whether we own or rent, you need a roof over your head. Mm-hmm. And so we try to capture that in consumer price. Inflation is the cost of putting a roof over your head, whether you're owning or you're renting. It doesn't matter. You're, we're trying to capture the cost of that budget item. And whether your house appreciates or depreciates, whether you have equity in your home or not, that's a balance sheet issue for consumers. Right. And so that's not in consumer price inflation. So the way we measure things tries to pull those two things apart. So house prices goes into your balance sheet, into your net worth, but what you're paying on a rental equivalent basis is not tied directly to house prices. And this is always, I think, one of the weirder, it's not weird, I understand why they do it, but it's hard to get your mind around statistical elements because they impute the rental cost of housing to homeowners. And so if you just talk to normal human beings, if you buy a house, you know, you take out a mortgage and then its price goes up 25% or something, you're like, hey, that's great. Your asset value went up, but rent is a really big aspect of the consumption basket. But whether you actually feel that that's a hardship is going to have a great deal to do with whether you are actually paying rent or only in some kind of statistical interpolation. Unlike the gasoline, right? Where it's like everybody gets really mad. Everybody pays the same. When gas gets expensive. Exactly. No, that's a good point because think about most homeowners. People actually entering homeownership is a small share of the market. Most people have already been in their homes, right? Home ownership of 60% mm-hmm. plus. Okay, so for those people, their home value has appreciated. So they feel like they've got some equity in their home more than they did before. And meanwhile, they were able to refinance their mortgages to lower interest rates. So their actual monthly payment went down. So that's actually deflation from a monthly cash flow standpoint. The cost of being in that home, when the home is more valuable and you're paying less to be in it, that's a great windfall for homeowners. It's obviously not good news for those who are trying to enter homeownership. So they get the short end of the stick. You were getting at that earlier with if you were smart and were able to, you know, restrike your rent at the bottom and during the pandemic, if you were in Manhattan, you came out ahead. Whereas if you're trying to move to Manhattan now, you're paying a higher rent. So There's always these dynamics that some people came out ahead, some people end up paying the higher rent. And what we're trying to do when we're thinking about average inflation for the average consumer is put that all together. And, you know, I was at a car dealership recently uh, because my car was broken, but I had the opportunity to ask some people who were buying used cars, like what they were thinking. Uh, yeah, because, yeah. You know, it was curious. Did, did, they think that, did, did they think you were terrifying and run away from you? Or? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but, you know, um, several of them said that they had recently refinanced their houses. So they had this extra money, which I guess, you know, the central planner in my heart would have, <laughs> would have asked them to buy something other than a car with that windfall because yeah. it's not, you know, that constructive uh, to the overall. But I you mean, I guess- You told them to go buy restaurant meals to go, go, re-employ the service workers. Go to IHOP, go, <laughs> go hire some people to mow your lawn or something. <laughs> um, we have- a lot of inflation in different good sectors in part because people do have a lot of money sort yeah. of sloshing around from different, yeah. the stock market's way up, homeowners' equities way up, people got, I mean, it's it's stimulus checks, but it's like right. all the levers. 
shows have mm-hmm. like pumped mm-hmm. a lot of money into people's yes. pockets. It, at least it's not that the, the, the rich get richer exactly. It's like the middle class well, gets yeah. richer, but it's the not ab- get it's, richer for sure. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's not limited to the rich, right? It's not like Jeff no. Bezos is buying all the cars. No, no, no. And that's a fair example, actually. And that gets to the question around price sensitivity. If people were be able to refinance their mortgage. And so they've got a little bit more room in their monthly budget. And that makes them a little bit less price sensitive when they buy that car because they can afford a little bit more of a car payment. You know, that's kind of this, again, back to this policy experiment, instead of kind of limping out of a recession, we are surging out of a recession on a wave of liquidity. What happens though next year? Next year, you're not going to be, you know, have that same change. People aren't going to be able to refinance their mortgages next year because rates are, aren't going to be lower. If anything, they'll probably be a little bit higher. So whatever your budget is, it's not going to change when it's in terms of your house payment. And so you won't have that change, that new cash to go to the car market. So whatever you're going to pay for the car is going to just depend on what you're making out of your job. And that's the idea. It's like, A lot of this stimulus was one time, a lot of the money that we put into people's pockets because of low rates and refinancing, that's a one-time change. That temporarily made people less price sensitive and they're going out and they're spending and that's good. We're surging out of the recession and it's a very strong recovery. On the other side though, once we settle into, okay, now we're just in a normal expansion where people spend money based on what they're earning at their jobs will they be more price sensitive? I expect the answer will be, yeah, it'll be a more normal dynamic where I'm going to go out into the marketplace for things that I want based on what I'm earning. And then I'm going to make choices based on what things cost. And that's going to be kind of the way things usually operate rather than just some kind of constant bidding wars for everything. We started out, we were talking about the sort of big energy price inflation that happened in 2006, 2007. And it always seemed to me that one reason we didn't have inflation outside of those sectors is that, you know, with all the other stuff that we buy today, this is an affluent country, right? Most people are not at the edge of subsistence. And mm-hmm. like if restaurants get expensive, you just don't go. I like to eat out. You know, I would be sad if I couldn't, but it's not the end of the world. Whereas like fueling up your car, you know, I live in a walkable neighborhood and, you know, would go 15 minutes on foot to the office, but most people aren't like that. You can't change that very rapidly. So, I mean, do you expect that all the kind of high prices in the, in the sort of durable goods markets will just kind of flush out as people spend down their money that they'll say, yeah, you know, I'm just, I'm not going to buy a table if that's what it costs. Yeah. I mean, I I do think that there's going to be a shift back. We're already starting to see a little bit of a shift back towards experiences and services Mm -hmm. and away from goods. And again, when some of that cash has worked its way through the system and you're making your decisions about what to spend based on your income, you are going to check the price tag and plan out your spending a little bit more cautiously or in more more budget sensitive way. So I do think that one overall good spending, I mean, one of the crazy things about this from a perspective of an economist like me, we've never seen this kind of shift in what we spend money on. Good spending Mm -hmm. is way above pre-pandemic levels. Services spending is still way below pre-pandemic levels. 
that doesn't happen. Usually we see somewhat of the reverse. People pull back on durable goods spending, cars and houses when unemployment is high and they're worried about the future. So again, we've sort of flipped the dynamic, partly because of the pandemic, partly because of the stimulus. But then on the other side of this, do we really want to just be hunkered down in our homes, baking bread or building decks? Or do we want to go out and, you know, go to concerts and go to restaurants? And my guess is we'll revert more back towards prior patterns. That that standard pattern on goods, right, is basically Mm -hmm. most people replace some of their stuff before it has completely given out. What it is varies, but it's like, depending on what you're into, you know, like you might upgrade a phone, even though your old phone works, you might get a new car, even though your old car still drives. And when times are bad, that's what people don't do, right? They say, okay, because you can always get one next year. You know, a car is a perfect example. You can always make your car last, you know, do that repair and, and get another year or two out of it. And so it's very unusual that we instead had this kind of goods frenzy. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. And you could imagine that going away. But then the question is, as you've, you've alluded to a couple times, the premise of this was that, well, we want a rapid labor market recovery of the kind yes. we didn't get in yes. 2010, 2011. Because yes. if, if you think back to that time, right, so people lost all their jobs. And there was this optimism at that time that, well, you know, the fall was steep, but like the balance right. is going to be <laughs> yeah, high, yeah, right? Yeah. The deeper the recession, the stronger the recovery. Right. Because it's like, well, there's just all these people uh, jobless. And then if you look at this recession, it looks in between to me, right? Like we have mm-hmm. seen 785,000 jobs, uh, 583,850. Mm-hmm. So that's much better than those are big numbers. 2009 yeah. number, 2010 oh, yeah. number. Yeah. But it's still not, if you like draw that line, that's still not like a V. That's not, well, we're back at full employment no. in six months. Yeah, even optimistically, right? You know, I'm not getting into variants and other kinds of stuff like that. We would need to see employment accelerate somewhat from here to Mm -hmm. really sort of get back to where we were in February 2020. Yeah. I mean, let's be clear that the norm of the last three recoveries has been what we call the jobless recovery, Mm -hmm. where it it takes years to get back to the pre-pandemic level of employment. We have people like last cycle was horrible. We had people dropping out of the labor force. We had labor force participation of prime age workers declining for five years. That is so depressing. Yes. And so you're right that even at the current pace, it would take more than a year to recover prior levels of employment, a year and a half or so. But we would hope to see stronger numbers. We may see, especially during July, August, September, with schools reopening, with unemployment benefits expiring, I'll throw October in there. We could see some stronger numbers than we've had. Very likely, we could see million job prints. That's not out of the question. And on the other hand, there are, you know, as we discussed, these sort of frictions of employers need to search for employees. Employees, you know, there's a dance, right? You have to match up with what you want, what you need. You have to interview, background check. And that's a process that takes some time. And businesses are restructuring what the Delta variant, where it's relevant. It's not likely to knock the U.S. economy down, but it might change 
how fast we go back to the office. What does work from home look like? How long do people want to live in the suburbs? Maybe that ends up being a permanent preference change rather than, you know, some of these different nuances could be impacted by whether the pandemic just goes away or we just learn how to live with this higher level of infectious disease. I mean, that seems like, you know, so you you have sort of reopening, right? Stuff that you assume sooner or later, the hotel right. rooms are going to be full. And I mean, yeah. it, it seems like, you know, the hotel chains, they're, they're trying to hire back housekeepers, yes. right? Now, whether people want to do that or not, those jobs are around. But, you know, I walk around downtown DC and it's just still kind of dead down there. Yeah. And yeah. if we have more variants and things like that, like, it just kind of seems to me that, you know, some of those lunch places. Like that's not going to reopen really ever, or it'll be really different. And that's a big sort of residual of people who they're going to need some other kind of employment someplace else, which is, which is hard, right? I mean, you can't just count on a one-time stimulus doing that automatically. Correct. And that is where recessions and business cycles, they all are different and they all have different drivers and patterns but they all share that dimension, which is that the economy never goes back to where it was. We always go forward to something else. And what we go forward to, we still are figuring that out. And that implies changes in business models. Some businesses don't make it, some will. New businesses come into being. We've had actually pretty decent business formation statistics you know, a pace of business formation during the pandemic. And that's tying it to the labor market recovery. That's why sometimes it takes time because Mm -hmm. that business that's holding on now might actually conclude it's not viable. And another business is figuring out the new landscape and saying, oh, I have an idea for how to get lunch to work from home workers, you know, in the DC suburbs or, you know, something like this. So these kinds of rotations and business model changes and restructuring And by the way, if we cull through earnings reports across industries, everybody is talking about trying to improve efficiency and automation and come back leaner. And that's also a feature of recoveries is that businesses try to regain profitability by keeping their labor costs low. And that's a headwind to hiring as we come out of a recession. So there's every reason, in fact, if anything, the pandemic accelerated the pace of business transformation through technology. And so that could be a headwind on the labor market recovery. And no, a one-time stimulus won't fix that. Although, you know, the infrastructure package could create a whole new class of jobs, right? right? You know, several new classes of jobs. So Again, there might be some time in matching people to jobs, but it's not like there won't be jobs. It will just be that there's some time, maybe training, maybe recruiting and relocation involved in getting that economy back to full employment where the Fed want it to be. So this is sort of the dilemma that I think the Fed is looking at. They are urging patients. I mean, and I think it's good, right? There had been in the past a kind of like preemptive strike against inflation mentality at the Fed that made it impossible to really get to full employment because you were always turning around at the first sign of trouble. And now they're saying no. I mean, they said before the reopening that inflation would go up. They said that was fine, that they're looking at an average over a sort of hazy medium uh, <laughs> perspective. Indeterminate amount of time. <laughs> um, but but there has been more 
it, we're prepared for it, but we've gotten more inflation. Yeah, we've gotten than more. They had forecast. Sure. So that puts pressure on to you know start talking about when do you put on the brakes. At the same time, you would ideally like to say, well, you're not going to put on the brakes while there's millions of people yeah. trying to sort out this labor market reallocation. The timing is tough. We can say, okay, this is transitory, but for how long? Well, so again, what Chair Powell said to Congress, I think he laid it out very nicely, which is to say, yes, it's been higher than we expected. But if you look at it, like we've been talking about used cars, reopening hotels, et cetera, are what's driving it. And we know that that's not going to keep going at this rate. Inflation isn't a one-time price increase. Inflation is repeated price increases year after year. Our airfare is going to keep rising at this rate. No, they're just resetting back to normal. And so what Chair Powell said, which I thought was nice, is it's not going to take forever for us to figure this out, but it will take more time. We need a few months. So I see that Chair Powell as trying to kind of calm things down and Okay, so we're going to start planning. We're going to start planning the normalization of policy, the reduction in bond purchases first. We're going to plan that out. At the same time, give us a few months. We need to get through July, August, September, October, and then we're going to know better what this looks like. And by the way, inflation doesn't like move like a rocket ship. We're going to have time to adjust. And yes, they have tools to adjust. Just them pulling forward that time frame for planning their reduction in bond purchases had a big impact on the market, right? It had a big impact on inflation expectations and financial markets. And so like, can they tighten things up? Yes, the Fed has the ability to tighten things up. But what if things are transitory? What if we get through this reopening and we get through the low hanging fruit of connecting people with jobs and then we're still left with a big chunk of unemployed people and price pressures that fade very quickly. What if that's the world we end up with in four months, five months? It would be a potential policy mistake to commit to recalibrating policy now at the peak of everything happening at the same time, the peak of fiscal stimulus, the peak of reopening, the peak of vaccinations. Like we know this dynamic is transitory, at least big elements of it are. And so let's just lay the groundwork, make the plans, But at the same time, let the economy go through this. Once we're, you know, November, December, we're going to have a much better sense of whether this dynamic is truly a better, stronger recovery, or we just went through a sugar rush and we're ending up with some high long-term unemployment. That's going to be very important for calibrating monetary policy. So what would be a sort of good news versus bad news over the next few months, right? I mean, you know, what would come in that would make you say, okay, like this is going really well versus, uh oh, we've got a problem. And, you know, we may be be stuck with with long-term unemployment uh, for a while that we don't have an obvious solution to. So good news looks like job gains that are at or above the June job gain, right? So can we get job gains of 800,000 to a million per month for the next four months. That would be great news. That would go a long way towards restoring, not all the way, that would only get us about halfway back from where we are right now to the level of employment where we want to be, but it would get us a lot closer. And it would be a sign that a more 
sort of healthy wage spending dynamic, more organic growth dynamic can be relied on. And then on the other side, a fast fading of used car prices, you know, less goods inflation, a faster moderation from the peaks of inflation that we've seen, that would be good news. That would be Goldilocks, right? That would allow the Fed to keep going sort of steadily, methodically, not be in a rush and let the recovery keep going. I think if they were forced by high inflation prints to pull things forward, that could create a lot of volatility for markets. It could hurt confidence and that would not be good news. So hopefully we get some moderation. Again, it's not going to be that we fall back in prices. It's just going to be that inflation moderates from here gradually. That would be a good leading indicator that they're right about the transitory dynamics. And then just faster matching between job openings and people looking for work and getting that faster labor recovery. That was the whole point of this exercise. The whole point of this big policy push was Let's get people back to work faster. Let's not let that long-term unemployment linger and labor force participation just remain low. We want, we want to get people back to work. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I'll let you go after that. Uh, Julie Coronado from Macro Policy Advisors. Thank you. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors, to our producer, Eric Janakis. Uh, and the weeds will be back on Tuesday.